morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. I'm not sure. <clears throat> well, I'm sure it's a false perception. But my family seems to notice that Christmas gets earlier and earlier each year. It starts earlier and earlier uh, each year. I think it was uh, sometime out in September I was at a Home Depot. And I was walking through the Home Depot. And I noticed that in addition to putting out Halloween decorations, they started putting out the Christmas trees and the Christmas displays already. And I was thinking, wow, it's way too early uh, to start uh, shopping for Christmas and putting out Christmas items. And then, you know, as Terry kind of alluded to in his prayer, you know, some of us are looking forward to Black Friday. But this year, you know, who needs to wait for Black Friday when you can shop on Thanksgiving Thursday? Um, If you haven't heard, you know, stores like Macy's and Kohl's, Best Buy, they're all going to be open at 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving, or they've announced that they're going to be open at 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving night. And even stores like Old Navy and Kmart, they said they're going to be open at 8 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning, and they're going to stay open for like 40-something straight hours until like midnight uh, Saturday, yeah, Friday at midnight. And um, I read, though, that if you're excited about this, if you like shopping, actually you may be a little disappointed because um, it may not happen in Massachusetts. Because I heard that um, actually there are blue laws in Massachusetts and they prevent stores from opening on holidays. Uh, so even though stores announced that they're going to open nationwide at these times, um, they may not open in Massachusetts. But I did hear a report uh, that they said that though technically it's illegal to open in, on a holiday in Massachusetts, they said they wouldn't know how they would enforce it or whether they even would enforce it. So if a, chose, a store chose to open on Thanksgiving, um, they may just let it stay open. So there's a chance that some of these stores may be open and they're not, or there's a chance that they won't be, but you'll find out, I'm sure, uh, within the next few days. And I don't know if you think this is a good thing or not. I personally don't think that it's good that stores are opening up earlier and earlier, and I don't think it's uh, good that, you know, retailers just start prepping for Christmas much earlier. Um, I, you know, I don't know if, if you uh, found out, I just, just listening to the radio um, just the other day, I found out there's already a, uh, a radio station playing 24-hour Christmas music, and it's not even Thanksgiving. Yes, good, it's Christmas music. And it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and I'm like, they're already playing Christmas music. Um, but if you like Christmas music, great. Um, and it's not that we're trying to follow suit here as a church, but unfortunately, because Thanksgiving is so late this year, we're going to be starting our Advent series today. And so <laughs> we are going to be talking about Christmas, even though it's not Thanksgiving yet. Uh, next Sunday, we'll be lighting our Advent candles, and families will come up and reading some scripture meditations on Christmas to prepare us for the birth of Christ. Um, and then we're going to be starting a sermon series on the book of Luke. We're going to be going through the first two chapters of Luke to uh, kind of prepare us, you know, as Christmas comes in a few weeks. You know, some people might say that Christmas is the time that God entered history to bring about his plan of redemption. But what I want to do today is just give us a little background and take us up to the beginning of Luke. Um, and, and to prepare us, we're going to kind of go back into the Old Testament And we're going to go through the Old Testament to the time of the birth of Christ and even beyond that today. And I want us to kind of use that as preparation as we get into the book book of Luke uh, next week. 
Um, because just because you know Christ entered history uh, at Christmas as we celebrate the birth of Christ, it doesn't mean that he wasn't at work before then. So we're going to um, you know, just start off today by looking at God's plan of redemption. And you know, if someone were to ask you, you know, they said, you know, how does the Old Testament fit in with the New Testament in terms of bringing about God's plan of redemption and the history behind you know, how all of this unfolds? Would you know how to answer that person? You know, what would you say? Could you do it in a clear and concise manner? And so my goal today is, hopefully after today, you will be able to do so. And as you, as you can see in your outline and your bulletin, I mean, basically we can break down this drama into four chapters. In the first chapter, very simply, we can just call creation. You know, that the God who eternally existed created out of nothing all that is not God. Right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He sustains and controls all things. He created things so that his glory might fully be displayed through creation. You know, there is no one, no force or being or power that could supersede him. There is no, no one higher than him that he reports to. You know, he is above all things. And every person without exception will have to reckon with this God either willingly or unwillingly. And so we can either submit to his authority or we can rebel against it. And then that leads us to the next part, which unfolds two chapters later in Genesis, when the first created humans chose the path of rebellion. And we can just call this conflict. This was in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they fell prey to the serpent's deception and committed the first sin. About a month ago, I was speaking with um, one of our very astute college students. Um, the person's not here today, but she was talking to me, and she asked a really good question. I think she was reading through uh, this account in Genesis 3, and she was kind of puzzled, and she asked me this. She said, you know, if it wasn't until Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge that they became aware of good and evil, then how could you say that eating the fruit prior to that was sin? Because they didn't know good and evil, right? And so I was thinking to myself, wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> and I don't know, if, I don't know how, you, how would you have answered that. I, I had to think for a moment. And it occurred to me that though it's true that Adam and Eve may not have received the fullness of knowledge of good and evil until after they ate from the fruit, they still had enough awareness to know what they were doing was wrong. And here's why. Because in Genesis 3, verses 2 to 3, the woman tells us to the serpent, he says, We may eat from the fruit of the trees that, is, that are in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You see, Adam and Eve knew that God created them. They knew that God had provided for them and had given them you know, greater privileges than any other creation, like the fact that they were even ruling over all other creation. They also knew that as their creator, God had authority over them, and they were to submit to him. So when Eve told the serpent that they could eat from the trees of the garden, but they couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge, 
They knew that doing so would be in direct disobedience of God's order. Instead of trusting that God was good and instructing them in what was best for them, they ate the fruit so they could become like God, what the serpent was telling them to do. So verse 6 tells us, you know, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to that and also desirable for gaining wisdom, they ate it. And this is the root of all sin, that we don't want to submit to the authority of God, but we want to be self-determining and self-reliant. That we think that we can control things such that we are wiser than God. And that our being in control will make us much happier than letting God have control. And because of this first sin, all people come into the world bent on rebellion. You know, there's relational conflict between God and God and man. There's relational conflict amongst human beings. There's conflict between man and other created things. You know, in the Sunday school class I was teaching last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes 7.29, which says, This only I have found, that God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. And, you know, Solomon's not talking about, like, good schemes here. He's talking about the wickedness and the evil that men do. And though men have gone in search of wickedness, the next chapter of the story shows us that God's purpose in being glorified through his creation cannot be frustrated. And we can call this next chapter covenant. And it starts where God chooses this one man, Abraham, to receive a blessing. God tells Abraham, or Abram at this time of, uh, in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless those, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. So God promised this to Abram out of his own choosing. Abram at this time wasn't this very, you know, grand, significant person. You know, quite the contrary. He was actually this obscure person and his wife was barren. They didn't have any children. But most of us are familiar with the story and we know that God blessed Abram and his wife Sarah with a child. And from this child, this child had two children. And from one of these children became the people of Israel because the 12 sons were the 12, you know, patriarchal uh, tri- uh, or the tribal patriarchs of Israel. And so God begins to work in Israel to create a people for himself, a people whom he would honor or who would honor him and who would display his glory. After years of bondage in Egypt, he frees the people from oppression. In Exodus 14, 13 to 14, Moses tells the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, you will see the deliverance or salvation the Lord will bring to you today. And then the Egyptians, you will see, you see today, will never, you will never see again, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So the people would see God work on their behalf. He would free them from captivity. He would bring them to a land on their own. Then after a period of wandering, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, where God makes another covenant. And this time, he makes a covenant with the Israelites through the law given to Moses. But this, this was a conditional covenant, where both parties had to fulfill their end in order for the covenant to be in effect. So in Exodus 19.5, God tells the people, if you, fully, if you obey me fully, 
and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Understand that even though this covenant called for obedience, it wasn't that God was expecting perfect obedience or that they needed to try to work to receive their salvation. What it did call for, though, was for people to obey God in faith and put their hope in the mercy of God. Most of you will remember the account of when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law from God. The people down below were building an idol, this, this calf, and worshiped this calf instead of God. Right there, you know, the covenant could have been broken, you know. Moses asked God, though, you know, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, you know, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance, you know, God could have said, forget it. You know, you guys just had an epic fail. The covenant is no good. But instead of saying that, he responds to Moses, I am making a covenant with you. Once again, he makes this covenant. Before, before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among, who live among you will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command for you today. So once again, he doesn't ask for perfection, but he calls for the people to put their trust in him. And then he establishes the system of atonement whereby sacrifices could be offered for sins. And we'll see in a minute that all this points to a coming Messiah whose death will fulfill all sacrifices and who is to be the one that we are to come to in faith. And when the Israelites, many of you know the story, were in the wilderness and God provided food for them, raining down manna from heaven, This was a foreshadowing of the true bread of heaven that would come down in Jesus. And then there was this incident in Numbers where the people were being bitten by venomous snakes and they were dying. So God tells Moses to make an image of a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And when the people looked to the pole, they would be healed. And this was also a foretelling of the ultimate healing that people would receive when Christ was lifted up on the cross. And so God made this covenant to the people and foreshadowed what was to come. The people eventually entered the promised land, but this was only a partial fulfillment to what God promised Abraham. For the book of Hebrews tells us that the early people knew that there was a better country, that there was a city which is to come. And then came the line of kings of Israel, which was originally sought for evil motives, but God used it for good. God made another covenant with King David, where he promised David that from his lineage there would come a king, the Messiah, whose throne he would establish forever. And so this is, in a a nutshell, is a very brief summary of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. He had creation, he had conflict, then you have the covenant. And this brings us to the beginning of the New Testament where we're going to start looking at Luke 1. And this is the last chapter 
in God's history of redemption. It's where we celebrate Christmas, and so we call the last chapter Christ. That Christ, born in the lonely major, is the one who will defeat his enemies, establish his kingdom, sanctify his people, and rule in peace and righteousness forever. But what the people didn't get back then is that the coming of the Messiah would be split into two parts. You know, when Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by religious leaders and be killed, it didn't make sense to them. And and you can see why. I mean, how can you defeat your enemies and establish your kingdom if your enemies are going to kill you? And it wasn't until later that after Jesus died and he rose again and he spent time with the disciples that they realized that it was precisely through Jesus' death that Jesus defeated his enemies, fulfilled the law and the prophecies, and he ushered in the kingdom. And when Jesus comes again, everything that they were hoping for will come to pass. And what I want you to realize today is, is, is we you know, think about salvation history, as, as we can call it, is that though Christ hasn't come again, and we were, we were still waiting for him to fully establish his kingdom, the authors of the New Testament saw that the birth of Christ marked the beginning of the end. In Acts 2, for example, when people talks to the crowd, he tells them, in the last days, referring to the present time when he was speaking, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 that examples he was referring to in the Old Testament, he says, were written down as warnings for us and whom the culmination of the ages has come. And then Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, or 29 is a great passage which talks about this. It says, but Christ has appeared once for all, when? At the culmination, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and then, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation on those who are waiting for him. See, he will come a second time, but what does it say? The first time he came was the culmination of the ages. And why is this such a big deal? Why, why does it matter that the birth of Christ marked the end of time, that the, 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 end, the beginning of the end of history? Because it heightens the importance of the birth of Christ from not just another chapter in God's redemption plan, but the end, the climax of redemption. You see, if we see the birth of Christ as just another chapter in God's plan and not the end, we lessen the importance of Jesus' birth and trivialize its significance. But if we see it as marking the end, it's not just the birth of Christ. I mean, this is it. This is the culmination of what God has promised. And you may sit back and kind of say, well, you know, it's really hard to think of the birth of Christ as the end of the ages because, well, it's been 2,000 years since he was born and I'm still around and the fullness of redemption hasn't come to fruition. So, I mean, it's just hard to think of it as the beginning of the end. And though that's true, 
We must remember that, you know, for the eternal God, the time has passed is not long at all. You know, if you, if you remember in Second Peter, you know, it tells us that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day. And if we think about this, now I want to use an example. I was hearing another author, another author example, another author used to explain this. You know, for myself, I'm fortunate. I have two great aunts that are still alive. One's 98, one's 102. <laughs> and then, actually, uh, the beginning of last year, in January of 2012, I just had another great aunt pass away. She was 104. So I, yeah, they were, they were old. They were very old. And, but actually, my aunts, 98 and, and 102, they're in, for their age, they were in great shape. They're mentally sharp. They're, they're doing well. It, it's, it's, it's great to, to interact with them. Um, and, and I assume many of you probably know uh, some centurions, right? People who are near or, or, or at or over 100 years old. And if you think about it, if we could just round up some of these people, and if we could like put them in a line and just line them up, you know, one behind the other, and if we could just assume for a moment that for the person in front of them, that person was born precisely when the person behind them died. Well, if you think about it, all we would need to get is like 20 of these people. And if you had 20 of these people, they would go back to the birth of Christ. And so in light of eternity, this is not very long at all. I mean, for Christ, or for God, you know, this is just like Friday. You know, and so it's not a long time that has passed since the birth of Christ. It's a short time. And when we think about Christmas in those terms, we can recognize that this is the beginning of the end, the time when God ushered in his redemptive purposes. You know, this Christ child whom we will celebrate in a few weeks has come. And when he came, he inaugurated the kingdom and he brought about his salvation purposes. You know, he is making all things new and bringing forth his redemption plans. And this is the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. And so as we understand God's plan of redemption, you know, what does this mean for us? I mean, what does it mean for us in terms of how do we apply this? You know, obviously, if we recognize that we are living at the end of the age, then we should live like we're in the end of the age. But also, it made me think more about the importance of sharing this good news with others. And it made me think about how we share it. And I was reading some material recently about ways people share the gospel in a distinction that's being made now between a two-part gospel and a four-part gospel. <laughs> Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, you know, different illustrations people use to share the gospel. I don't know if you can see it, but, you know, some of you are probably familiar with the four spiritual laws, which, you know, basically God loves you, man's sinful, Jesus Christ is God's only provision, and you must individually receive Christ. You know, if you're not familiar with this one, most of you have seen the bridge or something that looks like this. You know, illustrations of these types fall into more of the two-part gospel. And that's because they mainly stress 
two parts. The fall, that man is sinful, and redemption, that Jesus Christ came and died for their sins so that they can now have salvation. But this fall redemption model misses the bigger picture of God's purpose because it focuses entirely on the individual. It makes the gospel all about us. Author Dallas Willard, he called it the gospel of sin management. It doesn't tell us where we've come, why we're here, what our purpose is. And as N.T. Wright wrote in one of his books, he says, the point of Christianity is not to go to heaven when you die. Rather, it is about putting the whole creation to rights. Or in other words, helping to make all things right. And so I'm not you know, trying to attack I know many of you use the bridge illustration in the four spiritual. I'm not trying to attack you for doing so, but I just want you to consider how this may be deficient in truly explaining what the gospel is all about. And so recently people have noticed the deficiencies of these illustrations, so they've created new models, and they've added two chapters to it. So instead of just focusing on the fall and redemption, they've added two parts, creation and renewal. That God created all things good, and this is how things should be, but because of sin, the world and everything in it is not corrupted, evil takes place. But God has redeemed his people, not just for individual salvation, but to bring about restoration, to help bring about renewal. He doesn't just save us once again to go to heaven. He gives a picture of what things could be and should be like when Jesus will come and we recognize that when Jesus Jesus returns we are part of God's plan to help bring renewal to all things. Author Chris Wright in a book he wrote says the whole Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people and their engagement with God's world for the sake of God's whole creation. As an example of the um, the four-chapter gospel. Some of you may be familiar with this. Some of you may not have, uh, have seen this before, but there's this thing called the big story. And you may not be able to see, but it's basically four circles that starts from the upper left corner and goes um, in a clockwise direction. So the first two circles on the right talk about the two-part gospel, damaged by evil and restored uh, for better. But then with these four chapters, it kind of changes things. It talks about how God designed things for good, how we were damaged by evil, how we were restored for the better, and now this fourth circle, because we're restored, God's gathering people together, and we are sent out into the world to heal, to bring about restoration. Um, I don't have time to you know, explain how it all works, but I mean, if you're interested, you can just go do a Google search. You can do go on YouTube, and there's all these examples of people explaining the big story gospel presentation. Okay, and so as we prepare for Advent, you know, there's a couple of things I want us to remember. You know, first off, of course, remember that with the birth of Christ, the end has come. We are at the culmination of the ages. But more importantly, let us remember that until Christ returns a second time, we have this role to play in bringing about God's restoration plan. We fulfill our role 
when we share the gospel of Jesus with others and we engage in activities which promote things like mercy and healing and compassion and reconciliation. Yesterday morning, I had the opportunity to do some volunteer work with another organization. I try to volunteer work I try to join this other organization in their volunteer work because it allows me to rub elbows with a lot of unbelievers, a lot of non-Christians. And we were serving uh, yesterday at a, at a place that prepared meals for uh, terminally ill homebound patients. Uh, and through my time there, I was also able to engage in some spiritual conversations with people. So I was fortunate that I got to do both of these things. And, you know, you don't need to look hard to find some of these, you know, to find opportunities like this because God will guide you into these things. You know, before we went to serve, we were kind of praying that God would allow us, those of us who were going, to have spiritual conversations with some of the non-Christians. And I was trying to sense if there'd be opportunities to speak with people while I was there. You know, for a little while I was working along this older gentleman and we just started you know, having some small talk. I found out uh, he was a Bangladeshi man, and uh, he was telling, you know, kind of me about, you know, what he did and how he likes to volunteer. And I was trying to figure out how I could steer this conversation into more of a spiritual path. And so I was thinking, and I was, I didn't want to, like, you know, seem awkward in bringing it up. So, you know, I was just thinking, how could I turn this to a spiritual conversation? So I felt like the Spirit prompted me to ask this one question, and I and I, and I asked this question. I said, you know, it seems he was telling me all about the times he volunteers. And I asked him, I said, it seems you, you like to volunteer a lot. Why do you like to do so? Because I often wonder why people who aren't believers want to volunteer. And so I asked him, why do you like to volunteer so much? Oh, and he said, well, I want to serve others because I want to give back to God. or I want to thank God. And I said, what do you mean? And he pointed to his stomach. And he's like, this kidney inside of me, it's not mine. I received a kidney transplant. And because of that, I'm living. And now that I'm living, I want to give thanks to God. So then from there, I could ask him, well, what religion are you? What God do you believe in? And he was telling me that he's primarily Muslim, but he also believed in other religions like Hinduism and, and Christianity and how he had a Bible. You know, he even said, oh, you're Chinese. He said, oh, you know Chairman Mao? Are you old enough to... He said, I even have a little red book. <laughs> and I was like, well, Mao didn't believe in God, so I don't think that's right. And we kind of laughed. But, you know, we were, it's not that I was able to present uh, uh, um, the whole, you know, blown-out gospel illustration to him, but, you know, we had a few conversations about Jesus, and I told him, you know, what I believed about Jesus, you know, I told him that, you know, maybe I know Muslims believe one thing, Hindus believe one thing, Christians believe another thing, and, and I just kind of was telling him the differences in what um, we believe about Jesus, and, and you know, it's just a brief conversation, but I was just thankful that I had the opportunity to have such a conversation, and I share that because sometimes that's just all that it takes, and sometimes that's just all that's required. You know, maybe God brings you to people just to have these short, brief, spiritual conversations with them. And all it takes is for you to just begin your day by asking that God might lead you to opportunities to have such 
and responding as opportunities present themselves. You know, especially now that we are upon Advent season, you know, I think people are just open to hearing about what Christmas is about and are more willing to engage in spiritual conversations related to Christmas. So I, I hope and I pray for us that during the season, we would be sharing the joy that we have through the birth of Jesus to others because we recognize that the end is near. The, well, the, not the end, the end has come. And, it's not, and, and it will fully arrive when Jesus comes again. And we don't know when that is. But the end is here now. And so our time is short. So let's do all we can to share this good news with others because of the hope that we have in the birth of Christ. And we'll be looking more into this birth of Christ and the events around it uh, in the next few weeks. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, just for this time that you've given us to uh, learn a little bit, to, to be reminded of your salvation plan. And to remember, Lord, that the birth of Christ indeed marked the end of the ages. This was the final climax in your redemptive plan. And it is the culmination, you know. And so let us live knowing that the end has come in Jesus. And though he will come a second time and we are waiting for that, you know, the time is short. And while we are waiting, may we recognize your calling for your people to bring about your plan of renewal and restoration. May we be people who bring healing to the nations. May we be people who show compassion to those who are, you know, who are dealt injustice and poverty. May we be people who share the good news of Jesus Christ because this is the hope for all mankind. And we all need hope in days like this. Um, so help us, Lord, to be sensitive to opportunities that you give us to um, share the good news. And may we do so in confidence, knowing that Jesus has come. And with it, the end of time. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.